0: Colin Powell, um, you probably are familiar with that name. He was uh, not only a great American military leader, but he was also, uh, it ended up uh, finding out that he was a lifelong fixer. According to an obituary in the New York Times, said this, until his final days, Colin Powell remained preoccupied with fixing things. The former secretary of state and four-star general tinkered endlessly in his garage sometimes with his welder and sometimes on a succession of automobiles. He was a regular at the neighborhood hardware store there in McLean, uh, Virginia where he rummaged through parts of his houses uh, th- through parts for his house's malfunctioning dishwasher or leaking faucets. When he wasn't fixing things, one longtime friend said, um, "There was a result at the end of the." When he was fixing things, one longtime friend said, "This there was a result at the end of the day." It's why he was so happy to be an army officer. You take a platoon, and you make it better. But there were some things that he couldn't fix. In 2019, he was diagnosed with plasma cell cancer. He died in October. 2021 he also admitted that there were a lot of things broken in this world that neither he nor the united states could fix once he told his assistant going into the garage i can see that the carburetor is the problem and i fix it unlike foreign policy where nothing gets resolved you just spend you're just spending four years doing the best that you can (laughs) <laughs> um, I think we can relate to that part of uh, Colin Powell, um, maybe the fixing part, but, but also I think the realization that we can't always fix things in this world. Life is fragile. Have you discovered that? All of us are susceptible to uh, diseases, to accidents, to injuries, violence, germs, Natural disasters? All kinds of things can happen to us in this world in which we uh, live, and and that can lead us to have all sorts of questions. I'm sure you've asked these yourself if you haven't uh, already heard them being asked. Um, Questions like, why did this happen? Or, why did this happen to me? Or, why did this happen to my loved ones? Or who or what was was behind all of this? And how am I supposed to handle it all? The Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians after surviving all sorts of hardships in his life and ministry. We are currently in the study of uh, 2 Corinthians. And as we have discovered, it's one of Paul's least familiar letters. And it also speaks, 2 Corinthians, of the harsh realities of life and about the kind of faith that sustains us through difficult and dangerous times. Now, we don't know the particulars necessarily, but later on in 2 Corinthians, back in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, which we will come to later on in our study, uh, Paul catalogs a lot of, of the difficulties that he encountered during his ministry. He had been in prison, he tells us. He had been flogged. He had been stoned. He had been been shipwrecked. He had been uh, robbed and starved and and abandoned. And if all those things weren't bad enough, uh, there were a group of critics there in the church of Corinth that were attacking Paul personally. They said he didn't have the necessary credentials to be called an apostle. (laughs) And they suggested that because of all the bad things that had happened to him, that he must be under God's judgment, not under God's blessing. And so in response to those attacks, what the apostle does is he writes this letter of 2 Corinthians, both to establish his credibility as an apostle And also to teach these Corinthians um, a proper perspective on hardship and suffering. A perspective, I think, that you and I very much, we also need to hear. And we need to learn from. So I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Corinthians there. Or take one of those pew Bibles out. Or or take your phone and uh, find your Bible app and turn to 2 Corinthians we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Look what he says here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul begins here by claiming uh, we have this Treasure in jars of clay. The, the we here <laughs> that Paul uses includes not only Paul and his associates, but by extension, all of us who are Christ followers. So we, you and I, as Christ followers, we are jars of clay. And the treasure that he's talking about has been given to us back up in verse 6. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 6, where he says... Um, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The treasure that we have is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the power of having that knowledge, um, the very life of God that's available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the treasure. Hey, think about it. What an iron, irony, right? When men and women, you know, when you and I, we have something valuable that we want to hold on to, what do we do? We put it in a, a, an iron safe, right? Or if we want to show it off, what do we do? We, we, we put it behind glass, you know, in a kind of a, a, a trophy case where it, can sit there, and it can be seen, and it can last, and it can last, and it can last. But see, when God has a treasure, what does God do? <laughs> Where does God put it? Well, he puts it in a, a styrofoam cup. Um, he puts it in something as plain as a brown paper bag, you know, a jar of clay. So why, why does God do that? Why, how, how are you and I like jars of clay? Well, first of all, in the New Testament days, clay pots, um, jars of clay, were, were quite ordinary. Um, they were everywhere, especially in the homes of, of peasants and, uh, you know, um, common people. I mean, they didn't have plastic, <laughs> they, they didn't have, um, um, or had very little metal. They, they didn't have mason canning jars like you and I do. Um, they had nothing to, to store things in other than the most common material, clay pots. Paul is saying, put it in, in our language, in our modern day words, that God has taken his precious treasure and he has poured it into styrofoam cups, <laughs> into a, 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 a jars of clay, into a brown Paper bags, something as common as everyday. Second, jars are um, jars of clay were fragile. I mean, compared to marble or ivory or even wood, um, clay didn't last. You know, it, since it was so cheap to have jars of clay, um, you know, no one really expected the jars of clay to last. I mean. Uh, when a, when a pot, you know, got used for a while and then a chip was on it or it got broken and, and, and got beyond ability to use or when it fell and shattered, you know, what, what they simply did was they threw it away and they got another one. Paul, catch this, he, he, he creates this great juxtaposition, right? God has taken this, this treasure, the life of Christ. Think about this. He's taken the life of Christ And he's placed it in people like you and me, (laughs) unbelievable, who are common, who are as fragile as clay pots. That seems odd, doesn't it? Why would God choose something um, so valuable to put into a container that is so ordinary? Well, according to Paul, I, I think he gives us two reasons. First one is God stores his treasure in fragile containers like us in order to display his life-giving power. See, that way, when it's displayed in in a jar of clay, it's clear that whatever we accomplish, it's been done by God's power. It doesn't make sense, right, to place something... Uh, so valuable in a container, so ordinary, unless, of course, you want people to notice the treasure and not the container. Think of it this way. Imagine you're having guests for dinner, okay? You're having guests for dinner, and you decide, uh, you know, you're going to make your specialty. Um, chicken Parmesan, Okay? you to make your specialty, chicken parmesan. It's a special family recipe, um, you know, and, and your parents, your grandparents hand it down to you. And so when it comes time for dinner, you, 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 you have prepared this wonderful dish, and, and you bring it, this main dish, to the table, set it in the middle of the table, and your guests exclaim, they go, oh, my, look at that. What a beautiful serving bowl. Wow. And they spend the rest of the meal, instead of admiring the the chicken parmesan, they they spend the rest of the meal admiring the bowl. Where did you get that bowl? They never say a word about the the chicken. (laughs) So then the next time, if you were to do it another time, and you want your chicken parmesan to get the attention, what you do is you you serve it up in a disposable, uh, you know, foil tray, right? So it is with God, right? who pours his life into ordinary containers like you and me so that people will praise him and not us. We are who we are only because of the treasure that we carry within us, the life-giving power of Christ. The harder life gets, catch this, the more conspicuous the treasure becomes. Now, that's a very important lesson for us, I think, in the American church, don't you? You don't have to look very hard to find a preacher or a a Bible teacher telling you God wants you to be healthy and and wealthy and and happy. Listen to Christian radio for just a little while or uh, Christian cable broadcasts or, or surf the net. Uh, you know, internet, and you'll find people trying to tell you all the time God wants to bless you, and, and He wants to make you successful, and He wants to give you prosperity, and He wants to give you a long and, and lovely life. I mean, there's nothing new ab- about that type of teaching. I mean, there were teachers here in Corinth saying many of the same things to these people in this church. They had called Paul's ministry into question. Why? Because of the hard things that had happened to Paul. That's why Paul goes on and he lists some of his credentials for doing his, his ministry. And in fact, we find it's a very strange list, um, um, highlighting, uh, not highlighting his strengths necessarily, but rather highlighting some of the difficulties and disappointments he encountered. Um, I mean, imagine having this kind of resume. You're applying for a job, right? And, and, and you apply for the job, and you give them the resume. You say, listen, I dropped out of college for bad grades, but I did the best I could. Um, I got fired from my last two jobs, but I learned a lot through the experience. Um, you know, I got some reference letters. Uh, oh, here's one from a, a coach who kicked me off his, his team. And, oh, and here's one from my probation officer. <laughs> imagine using that type of resume? I mean, it's kind of an anti-resume, right? Look at Paul's anti-resume, starting in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That word afflicted there might best be represented by the word squeezed, um, or the phrase um, stressed out. Have you ever slumped through the day as if You got the the weight of the world on your shoulders, you know? Ever felt extensive, you know, just pressure? As though you're being squeezed? Paul has been squeezed, he says, but I have not been squashed. (laughs) Paul continues. Look at his next phrase perplexed, but not driven to despair. In other words, we're confused, he says. We've been at a loss, um, mixed up. Merrill uh, Tinney's unpublished translation, uh, I think, brilliantly expresses it. He says, bewildered, but not befuddled. (laughs) Um, Have you ever experienced, uh, been so overwhelmed by the complexities of life? Or by some difficult decision that you, you have to make and you're completely immobilized by it? not sure what to do, not sure uh, how to respond. Paul was bewildered, (laughs) he says, but not befuddled. He goes on, he says, um, verse 9, persecuted, but not forsaken. Um, I mean, think about Paul's life. Paul knew what it was like to be pursued and I mean, everywhere he went, it seemed like he had enemies that were trying to track him down and, and attack him. And There were even fellow Christians that were criticizing him. But God, he says, never abandon him. Do you ever feel like in your life that everyone's out to make your life difficult? Maybe family, maybe friends, maybe your boss, the school, court system. Do you ever wonder if God is there? God promises here that he will never forsake his chosen vessels. Paul's intensity increases with this final phrase here at the end of verse 9. He says, struck down but not destroyed. Uh, again, uh, Tenny's rendering, I think, he catches the idea. It says, We're knocked down but not knocked out. Literally, emotionally. Now think about it. Paul's been knocked down time and time and time again, over and over. My guess is you, you probably know what it feels like to be knocked down. You've experienced one setback after another, one defeat after another, maybe financial troubles or, or health problems or lost job or family strife. Paul and his partners were, were struck down, they were stressed out, they were mixed up, they were picked on, and they were knocked down. I mean, talk about feeling beat up, but they always got back up again. The world, I think, it's done' its worse to us. but we Christians are still standing. Listen, not because of who we are. I mean, we're just a bunch of clay pots but because of the life-giving power of God that God's placed within us. And that power is never as conspicuous as when we're going through hard times. Paul's unusual resume here reminds us that God never promised any of us, catch this, God never promised any of us immunity from hurts and hardships in this life. If anything, following Christ makes things more complicated and and leaves us more vulnerable to hostility and to heartache. The most obvious evidence of the presence of God um, in our lives isn't that we escape hardship, but that we endure hardship. Listen, if you're feeling squeezed, (laughs) bewildered, picked on, or knocked down, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. On the contrary, it probably means you're right where you're supposed to be. God doesn't take pleasure in our hardship, nor does he afflict us with pain simply uh, to see how we will handle it. It's just that we live in this crash-bang world, right? Right? And every time we get knocked around without breaking, what happens is we show the world we have something special inside of us, a treasure, the life of Christ. There's a second reason God puts his treasure in jars of clay, and that's to dispense his life-giving power. Jars of clay were meant to be used, (laughs) not to be admired. Um, uh, one of the wedding gifts that Becky and I received um, uh, was a, uh, a set of rice china. Rice china is very, uh, uh, very, um, what I want to say, uh, very delicate, um, easy to break, beautiful, but very delicate. And so what we did was we, we put that rice china in our, in our china cabinet, you know, and there it stayed. It stayed for, what, 36 years? (laughs) Never once in our 36 years of marriage has it been used. Listen, God's not looking (laughs) for delicate rice china. He's looking for rough and tumble clay pots, the kind that can be used every day. He's looking for kind of pots that don't need to be tucked away into a uh, china closet but can be sent out of that crash-bang world that we live in, carrying within them the life of Christ. The church was never meant to be a china closet where precious pieces could be safely stowed away out of harm's way and, and, and we just gather together never to go out. No, the church was meant to be a working kitchen like last night downstairs at Terrace on Chicago. I would have loved to have poked my head back there. I didn't dare, Um, you know. A working kitchen where well-worn pots are filled again and again, dispense the life-giving contents to a thirsty world. In fact, look with me at what Paul says next in verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. As Paul lived out his, his mission, he not only experienced the suffering and and. and The death of Jesus in his body, he was also filled, as that jar of clay, he was filled with the life of Christ. It's interesting here that Paul chooses that phrase, always being given over to death. Um, Because that that phrase there was used to describe, um, in the Gospels, Jesus being turned over Uh, to the authorities for flogging and for crucifixion. In the same way that God allowed his son to suffer for the sins of the world, (laughs) he sometimes allows his servants to suffer in order to offer um, everlasting life to the world. uh, Vance Havner once said, God uses broken things Broken soil to produce crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It's the broken alabaster box that gives, um, uh, gives forth perfume. It is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. Whenever a believer loses his job in a... In a bad economy, but responds with trust and perseverance, the life of Christ seeps through. When a Christ follower um, finds herself flat on her back, in a hospital bed, uncomfortable and uncertain, yet blesses those around her with grace and with faith, the life of Christ spills out of her. When people celebrate a person's life and sing of joys at a, of heaven at a Christian funeral, the everlasting life of Christ fills the room with its fragrance. This past week, I had the chance to go visit Felix Juarez. Um, most of you know that, and you've been praying for Felix. Uh, Felix has been battling cancer These days, he's at home in hospice care. Um, And although he's continuing to get weaker, I can tell you as I sat across from Felix this past Tuesday afternoon that the life of Christ spilled out of him. That's what happens. Like the Corinthians, we tend to associate the blessing of God with freedom from pain and and hardship, but that's not the case, friends. It's not the case. The blessing of God is in the midst of the pain and the hardship. We continue to trust and obey, uh, love, and and live the vibrant life of Christ within us. Suffering isn't a sign of divine disappointment. Disappointment but rather it's an opportunity to display and dispense God's power. So you say, well, how do we do that? How do we endure? How do we make it last? How how do we continue to trust to live the vibrant life of Christ as, as as we're suffering, as we're going through hardship? Paul reminds us two ways to do that in this passage this morning. First of all, by holding on to the promise of a future resurrection. Look with me in uh, verse uh, 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. This is what he speaks about. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The resurrection. Do you realize this was central to Paul's preaching of the gospel? I mean, you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he said, And if Christ has not been raised, and our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he says. See, Paul was able to speak, he says, with such courage because he was confident that even if death took him, God. The God who raised Jesus from the dead would also raise him up. And notice here that Paul is confident not only in the resurrection of Jesus, but also in the resurrection of all believers. Do you see this? He will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul, here, catch this he's talking about a corporate event. The resurrection of all believers is as sure as Christ's resurrection. We're currently in Lenten season, right? Preparing for that great celebration on Easter morning. One of the goals of Lent is to physically and tangibly remind each one of us of our human condition, of our own um, frailty, that one day we will all return to dust. The things that we long for, the things that we cling to, will one day disappear. There's only one real thing that will last our resurrected life in Christ, a life we uniquely celebrate on Easter Sunday morning. <laughs> Paul's conference in his future resurrection, gave him the ability to endure. Not only that, but he was also confident in our present transformation, he tells us. Look with me at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, he says. Now remember, (laughs) um, this is the way he started this whole chapter. We don't lose heart, we don't give up, we don't quit because he knows what God is doing in his life and then he goes on, look with me. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, I I can attest to the fact that aging and decay can be very disheartening. Um, You know, my knees aren't quite what they once used to be. Um, You know, I don't quite remember names like I used to be able to. Um, Our bodies, we're down, right? I mean, we all admit that. Paul here is reminding us that while our outer body strength fades away, our inner self, our new self in Christ, continues to be renewed, to be reconstructed day by day. The deposit of the Holy Spirit within us sets in most this regenerative overhaul of the the self that will ultimately culminate in a complete transformation at Christ's return. He counts on that. He has confidence in that. In a blog, Randy Alcorn discusses why God allows suffering in the lives of people. He says this, mountain climbers could save time and energy if they reach a summit in a helicopter, but their ultimate purpose is conquest, not efficiency. Sure, they want to reach a goal, but they desire to do it by testing and deepening their character, discipline, and resolve. God could create scientists, mathematicians, athletes, musicians. He doesn't. No, He creates children who take on those roles over a long process. God doesn't make us fully Christ-like the moment we're born again. He conforms us in the image of Christ gradually. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. He continues, in our spiritual lives... As in our professional lives and in sports and hobbies, we improve and excel by handling failure and learning from it. Only in cultivating discipline, endurance, patience, do we find satisfaction and reward. And those qualities are most developed through some form of suffering. And because of his confidence, in his ongoing transformation, Paul says this, last verse here, verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those things that are seen, those things of this world you encounter all the time, they have their day. And then they will cease to be. But the things that are unseen, the things of heaven, will last forever. Paul's challenge for all of us is to fix our eyes on the eternal, focus on the hope of our resurrection. And and present transformation, what God is doing and how he's changing us. Focus on the eternal. So even in the midst of our troubles, even when we're feeling squeezed or bewildered or picked on or knocked down, we can take courage that our lives are demonstrating God's power through the testimony of our endurance and holiness. Japanese marathon runner Shizo Kanakari competed in the domestic qualifying trials for the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. Kanakari set a marathon world record and was selected as one of the only two athletes from Japan that they could afford to send to the event that year. However, Kanakari shockingly disappeared during the 1912 Olympic marathon. Evidently, he had had a rough 18-day trip to get to Stockholm, first by ship and then by train, um, all through the Trans-Siberian Railway. Kanakaran, weakened by that long journey from Japan, lost consciousness midway through the race (laughs) and was cared for by a local family. Being embarrassed from his failure, he returned to Japan without notifying any race officials. Swedish authorities considered him missing for 50 years before discovering that he was living in Japan. In 1967, he was offered the opportunity to uh, complete his run. He accepted and completed the marathon in 54 years, eight months, six days, five hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds, remarking, it was a long trip. <laughs> Along the way, I got married, had six children, and 10 grandchildren. <laughs> Listen, the Bible is full of stories of people who felt like they wanted to lose heart, like they wanted to quit. But later, with God's help, they finished the race. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before God renewed his call. Peter denied Christ and he went back fishing before Jesus restored him. The list continues with John Mark and um, Samson and many others who eventually finished the race. So friends, here's my invitation simply to this morning. Don't lose heart. Run the race. Finish the race when you're feeling squeezed, when you're feeling bewildered and picked on and knocked down, take courage. Keep your eyes fixed on the treasure of Christ and the eternal.